Welcome to the world of culture pop with Steve Mason and Sue Kalinsky. Culture, comedy, movies, TV, tech, authors, trends, pop, pop. This is the Culture Pop Podcast. Hey, everybody, welcome to the Culture Pop Podcast. I'm Steve Mason along with Sue Kalinsky. Sue Baloo, what is going on? I'm just bundled up in my house. It's freezing in here. Yeah, and you've got heat, right? You've got heat available to you. I know, but a lot of times I don't like putting on the heat because it doesn't feel good. You know, it's like too much, too much. I, I, I actually like the cold. I'm looking forward to this uh, brisk weather. Yeah, no, I, I love fall in L.A., as, as such as it is. I miss fall back east. This is the one time of year I miss being back east is, is the leaves turning and all that stuff. But give me L.A. in the fall. I will absolutely take it. It's close enough. It's close mm-hmm. enough. So uh, we got to see a really great movie. Um, and our guest today is a playwright, an actor, and a director. His new film is Small Engine Repair, based on his own play. It is one of my favorite movies of 2021. I know you loved it, Sue, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, John Polono joins us. John, thank you so much for doing this. Of course. My pleasure. Thank you, guys. So uh, Small Engine Repair, we both just fell in love with this movie. It's gritty. It's dark. It's got a great twist to it. Uh, loved it. Now, it started out as a play. Where did you first stage the play? The play was done as part of a late night series at the theater company that I was co-founder along with my wife and a bunch of friends uh, called Rogue Machine. And we did it in 2011. My wife was producing the late night series at the time. And, and what it was is after the main stage play ended, in this case, it was Cormac McCarthy's play, Sunset Limited. When it ended at around 10 past 10, you could then ferry in your set, clip it on. You had to use their lights, their sound schematic, all that stuff. And you could do whatever you wanted. So people would then sit down at around 1030. You know, you could drink in the theater. People usually had dinner and they had it. So, so the, the, the material by nature was rowdier and more sort of twisted. And with that in mind, I kind of let loose and wrote this, incorporating the sort of physicality of the Sunset Limited set. I was like, all right, lights come up. We have this master scene, one act play, 75 minutes and lights come down with very little sort of music cues or light cues. It was all the acting and the story and really being coarse. And I, I kind of looked at it sort of like a late night stand-up comedy routine for the first half. Hmm. And then it would delve into, and like my favorite theater pulls the rug out from under you and then turns the sort of camera from the stage to the audience and makes them like, holy shit. I got to think about that, you know, provocative. So that was the play. And, and, you know, late night, lower stakes, low budget. John Bernthal was in that original cast. We were like changing in the bathroom as people were leaving. And, you know, we didn't know. We were really, we felt the material was very clear in terms of having this brain and having this idea and stuff, but we didn't know if people would get it and, and be able to sort of, you know, get through the coarse language and all of the twists and turns. And it just hit like wildfire and it spread among the, the the theater community, artistic theater community sitting next to like Bernthal brought in a bunch of his pals were like pro fighters and, and firemen and cops. And so we had this real great late night community of rowdy people who are listening to this equal opportunity offensive play, but really understanding deeply subversively the themes behind it were actually trying to make us talk and connect. And that artistic experiment paid off the play ended up moving to a couple other theaters bigger theaters from this 40 seat late night house we've got some main stage productions 
got ended up trend, uh, moving to New York City, off Broadway at MCC Theater. And then, you know, the play's been done all over the world at this point, but in the sort of more artistic, smaller thing. So that, that, was, that was how the play started. So this, this story of these three guys, um, is this biographical in some way? I mean, you know, it takes place in New England. I know you're from New Hampshire. Sure. I mean, it's the first play I ever wrote that had a reference level that I didn't have to research. It was like my backyard. Hmm. And, you know, uh, at that point, I'd written a lot of plays, but I never, I guess I got to be honest, I never thought where I grew up was so interesting as to warrant a play. And then I just kind of said, screw it. And I, and I did. And, there, you know, it's composites of, of characters, of elements of people I knew, accents, snippets of this and that, but definitely not biographical. Although emotionally, my having a daughter and growing up in a certain environment was certainly a truthful jumping off point for something about me. I mean, I always feel like, especially when it comes to writing a play, like if I don't feel my heart pounding in my chest about it, like I'm not going to write. There's, you know, it's a lot of work, very little money, and you got to put your blood and your sweat in there. It doesn't always work, but it's got to be something that I'm like really engaged in. So I always enjoy, I, I felt that that juxtaposition of these like masculine, rowdy, testosterone fueled guys really discussing what I felt at the point was something that having three sisters and having a daughter, I, I, I felt very strongly about. So it was like, how do I make a feminist themed play told from the point of view of these masculine guys? And that, that was very personal to me. So that kind of jumped off, but you know, composites of the characters, like Frank was, inspired by a guy who when I was in college my senior year I bought a Harley off of this broker who would just buy and sell bikes you know and we bought this sportster and it, a bunch of it was in boxes my dad was an engineer and he has a real hard temper he's hard to like you know he's not the most patient guy but we we put this bike together together and did the electric and all that stuff and there was some issues that we were incapable of doing with the carburetor and my dad worked on South Willow Street in Manchester and he used to drive by this like this shop and uh first of all it was a place called frank's front end that would fix the front end of your car so we grew i mean look where i grew up my generation you never bought new cars you know you'd always buy used cars so you're always in the shop and uh so i was anyway that frank's front end i was always like that's such a cool name but this guy that, who ran this harley shop uh you know i'd go in there and he was just this big dude and he had this big pit bull in a in a, in a bed and he would sit down he'd like give you a beer and he and his friends were just like every time you went because I had a you know chronic issue. It took like six times to go. <laughs> Every time I went, the same guys were there. They're hanging out and they're drinking beer and they're just talking about women and about everything like this. And the guy had a daughter and he's like, my you know daughter, this and that. And I was just like, these guys are so interesting. You know what I mean? And like, I've worked a lot of construction sites. I've worked a lot of like various manual labor jobs throughout my life. And I just kind of was always in that, in my neighborhood and everything, in that working class milieu. So, you know, that was kind of it. I was like that, that, that contained you know, home base of that, sh of that Harley shop was like, I was like, this is a cool place to do a play. And that was, yeah. So, you know, you, you cherry pick these things, but that was, uh, it was fun to visit that. So what about the play made you think this is, this is a movie and this, was this your directorial debut? It was, yes. It was. Um, what, what made you think, yeah, I, I see a movie here. I feel a movie here. You know, man, that's such a great question. So couple of things you know I, I Bernthal being in that cast uh, and I only met him at the second reading of the play we just hit it off we became you know real good friends he's one of my best friends today and we were always like I mean we worked on so much together was he already uh walking dead Bernthal at that point 
so he did the first season of Walking Dead. Okay, okay. And John, like, I mean, he's gone public about this, so I'll tell you. So he was involved in a lawsuit where he was in Venice and somebody tried to steal his dog, who's in our movie. Wow. And he got in a fight with this guy and knocked this guy out for a while. And the guy saw John's billboard for Walking Dead or whatever and sued him. So John was like in the process of all these depositions and all this stuff, and he couldn't leave L.A. So he's like, it's a great time to do a play. So that's kind of how we got him. And uh, we really hit it off, but we were always like, wow, this could be a good movie. I mean, one of the a, a great advantage of, a, of an independent film is having it primarily in one location, of which a plays typically are. Small Engine Repair is especially suited for a movie because the stakes are very cinematic. During this time, this 10-year period, the technology that was in the play, which was Foursquare originally, that social media element just became more relevant. But more importantly, thematically, it became more relevant. When the Me Too movement came out, a lot of the dialogue, a lot of people engaging and discussing things, it was like the kind of the nation was having a dialogue that I felt the characters in their milieu were having. And I felt, we felt that it was more relevant than ever. It wasn't just like, we know these characters, we know the battle, the, the materials battle tested. It was like, how do we contribute to that dialogue? And, and then sort of in adapting it, it was like really going for broke because I, you know, I feel it's instructive to always not, look, I think you can deal with themes in a utopic way and showing like, this is how it should be. And then you do something like small engine repair, which is like, let's start asking some really hard, tough questions. And let's like reflect on this and see this sort of journey these characters go on and, and, and really hopefully emerge from that. You know, let's think about this a little bit. And, but by the way, I also knew small engine repair, the material I had seen, look, when you're in a play, you get a feedback loop with the audience. So you know every line, you know that you know how far you can push. You, we knew that this material connected with people, you know, and, and in terms of the age we are, in terms of how people are, are getting, you know, so divided and everything and so outraged over everything. I was like, I know this material speaks to, to women, most importantly to me, like my sisters. I was like, women get this and they know what's going on. But I was also like, I know the guys who would really enjoy small engine repair would maybe have their minds opened a little bit or maybe be more uh, like circumspect in the way I deliver the story as opposed to delivering some of these same themes in a different way. It would be like, now nah, that's not my kind of thing. So I, we just felt like we had a really cool opportunity to, to do that. So, you know, and then it's something I always wanted to do, something John always wanted to do and we built a team and, and things happen. At some point, you just have to be like, let's just go for it. See, I, I, I know guys like that that are in this movie. You know, I grew up oh, yeah. in Long Island. Yeah. And uh, there is, I, I feel that there, there's kind of a similar type of style between New England guys and uh, Long Island guys. And a uh, bunch of knuckleheads, you know, always getting into trouble. Um, the dialogue in this movie is just incredible. There's one line that, oh my God, so when <laughs> I'm trying to remember who said it when he said, who knew that an accidental orgasm in Hampton Beach bathroom would go to fucking college? <laughs> I mean, it's just, yeah. I mean, it just doesn't get any better than that. Um, yeah, that it really, was, uh, really brought, brought, brought me back oh to my God. growing up. I love hearing that, Susan. That's so awesome. Uh, you know, I think, I think when you tell a story that's super, super specific regionally, it ends up being universal. And, you know, we've had people from 
all over the world see the play and say, oh, you know, I'm Australian, but that my dad has a shop. That's my dad or, or Long Island or Portland. Everywhere has these guys. You know, the accents are different. Some of the references are different, but everyone's the same. And, you know, that's an example of a line that was deeply battle tested on stage. You know what I mean? For years. So we were like, but the interesting thing is, is theater has that sort of uh, dynamic where you, you know, it's more musical. Like you, you have to plant your feet and project it. And, and it's here in, in the movie so much like, I mean, I encourage you to watch it again. I, I really tried to make a movie like um, some that I were so inspired by, but like Goodfellas or Reservoir Dogs. These movies that the first time I saw them, I was kind of terrified and so much went by. And then on subsequent viewings, I kind of saw how funny they were and so many of this stuff. So this movie, a lot of the really funny lines in the play are just kind of thrown off in the movie. Uh, and, and the line you picked up on is a great example. I mean, that just gets thrown away. I mean, I, I would say people don't always necessarily hear it even when they first see it. Um, it's so funny that it, it stuck with you. The uh, the movies that uh, that got made, and it, it has a feel for me of the movies that got made in the 70s. That sort of gritty dark sort of, you know, Paul Schrader. I mean, there's a, there's an element of that sort of taxi driver kind of mission thing. You know what I'm talking about? Oh yeah, man. I, I, I'm so happy to hear you say that. I mean, those are, that was definitely much the approach, like a Sidney Lumet, like even like, you know, even do the right thing was a huge, which is obviously eighties, but still the, the, the movies of the era where it was like more provocative and, and really, pushing the culture and pushing the audience and doing that. And that, that's very much what it is. But stylistically as well, though, you know, the whole apparatus of the filmmaking, the way it was shot and everything, you know, I wanted the audience to feel a little derailed. Like, who's in charge of this? It's not necessarily in control. It's going to, it's racing towards this out of control moment, which sometimes happens, especially when you hang out with guys like that and they get really fucked up and it can be dangerous. It's tense. It's funny, sort of out of control, which those 70s movies, to your point, totally embraced that that chaos and and that was very very much designed so what other 70s movies inspired you i mean look taxi driver is a huge a huge one obviously um you know i, I love dog day afternoon serpico yeah. just in terms of these like masculine like dog day afternoon is a great example because that's a very progressive movie but it's done so gritty and thrown away and it's not like hey pat me on the back look how open-minded i am and it was like I always loved that movie and how much it how much it crept up on you that you left and it really made you think about some things you wouldn't ordinarily do and so that was very much the idea. But obviously, you know, Scorsese is like a huge one, and you know, uh, Paul Schrader being the writer of Taxi Driver, all that stuff where they're kind of exercising demons in in the in the in the narrative and the antiheroes and the complicated. You know, there's no clear heroes in Small Engine Repair. I think you. You root for them, but more importantly, it's like, what journey do you go on as a viewer as opposed to the characters coming out with some deep, profound, spoon-fed enlightenment? It's like, the onus is on you. What do you feel about it? You know what I mean? Which I love that. You know, I love that interactivity of it. Um, so, yeah. I love, man, I, I, love, I, love, I love how much attention to detail um, that was in this movie. And, and like, Shea Wingham, who, who we love, he, he's been on our show. Um, his crappy haircut told you so much about his character, <laughs> you know, just, yeah. just that lost kind of loser guy. Um, it was all in his haircut. <laughs> no, man, we had, um, and, um, that was, uh, um, um, we had a great, uh, Mr. Braun, who was our, uh, our, our head of our hair department. 
who is so good. I mean, all of it, you know, that whole thing. And, and, and Rachel Havesi, who is like our, our makeup person and, and, and Mia, our, our costume designer, like we had these, you know, we, one thing we, I always said early on is I was like, I'm like, my dream is someday kids would dress up as Packy for Halloween. Like, <laughs> like, let's give him a distinctive enough, like, look that he's a character, you know, he is deeply enmeshed in that character. And what of all those details? Cause look, I think in sometimes in a bigger movie with a bigger cast, you know, you have so many different looks, it's harder to track. It's like Packy spends most of the movie in one outfit and one particular thing with hat head and, <laughs> and the scars that we had on him. And like, I grew up and I'm sure you did too. And you're in like a kind of working class neighborhood. You see kids who they get cut and they didn't get the best medical treatment. You know, they have a scar that like, I would make sure my kids went to a plastic surgeon because like, I can afford that. But I, you know, growing up, you didn't. Somebody got a cut in their eye, they got two stitches and they're done. And then they oh, have a scar like, the rest of their life. Oh, so they're sewing so, so it up themselves. Well, yeah, in some <laughs> cases. They're not going to the dentist every six yeah, months. They're not yeah. doing that. So Packy was very much like hand-me-down clothes. It's like that's his uncle's jacket. And, and you know, Shay is a brilliant character actor, but he is that kind of guy who would work with those studio heads. And they loved it to get every detail of it. So he shows up on set, like everything, like he has a story behind the gloves he wears and the hat and all that stuff, the way he smokes, the way he puts it away. Like even when we have him smoking a joint, he's like, it had to be rolled a specific way. He had to roll it. He had to do all that stuff. So that level of texture, and it's not like a gimmick. It's just so he just effortlessly lives in the space of that character. Well, and he's kind and of cast against, he's kind of cast against type too. Cause I'm, I'm used to yeah. Shea Wiggum as, as being sort of the guy in charge, the cop, the authority figure. Was that, was that deliberate on your part to kind of go against type? Well, look, it's always fun when you can do that, if they can handle that. I mean, in this case, it's like John and I, you know, we have 10 years of friendship and we played the character and we knew whoever was playing Packy had to be like an incredible actor. And John knew Shay. I was a big fan of him, but I was like you. I was like, I know Shay as like a heavy. Yep. But he read the material and he's like, you know, I'm going to lose. He, dude, that guy like went on like a raging bull diet. Like he lost so much weight. You know, he was down to, I'm, I'm going to say like 140 something. Wow. Pounds. He was nothing. And, and he just so inhabited it. And I look, I know on paper, and I've seen some wonderful actors play Packy, that Packy is very, very funny and he has heart. But the depth of that character, to me, he's the most singular literary creation in the whole movie. Like a lot of these characters and archetypes and versions of them have, could, could coexist in another movie. But Packy only exists in this environment around these friends. So you needed someone who could get the depth and the heart that he did. And, and he, man, he, he absolutely did. And, you know, it was a leap of faith because, yes, he has not exactly done something like this, but I was familiar enough with his work. And in John, in terms of having these conversations with him and seeing him do it and the process he went through, you know, we rehearsed this movie like a play. We sat at a table for months and John and I and Shay and really got a, you know, layer by layer. So, you know, when he showed up, he was that guy. And I actually think Packy is in some ways closer to who Shay is than a lot of characters he plays hmm. in the sense that Shay has an incredible heart and he is deeply, deeply loving person and, and there for other people. You know, the Boardwalk Empire, a lot of these things, he's like a terrifying tough. And he has that element in him, but the Packy, the sort of inquisitive philosophical thinker where he just wants everyone to love, that's who he is uh, at heart, which was really cool to see him come out. And by the way, I think that's why he's so brilliant in that role is because he's just tapping into the humanity of the character. Where, look, a lot of actors, I think, could have potentially played that role, like kind of almost making fun of him or playing the low-hanging fruit of the humor. 
And he never tried to be funny. He was always like a, a damaged, tragic person. And, you know, he, he handled, there was one element, one storyline that I, I wanted to tell in the, uh, in the movie subtly, which I felt reflected thematically with these terms of, you know, with this, these gender dynamics and masculinity in particular was that Packy has a very nebulous, complicated sexual identity and of who he is without telegraphing it and putting a big bow on it. You know, the tragedy is a guy like that in that name. Like, look, if Packy had more uh, grown up in a wealthier neighborhood with parents who understood him, you know, he could have done anything. He could have done anything and really lived who he is. And as a result, you look at him and because of the environment he's lived in, everything that's kind of really special about him, he's had to keep really tucked away. Um, including who he loves and who he's attracted to and all that stuff. So, I mean, Shay really just juggled all that in such a profound way that I, I, I took some of the text away that, that sort of spelled that out more because it was so beautifully mysterious the way he did it. I love how he, his character knew so much about social media. <laughs> Bernthal's <laughs> yes. character knew nothing. And I, know, I love right? that it was, that it was Packy that really had a hold, had, had a hold on that. Yeah. No, is that's that's usually the case, right? Because he, he's inquisitive and and he's like he's woke, whereas Bernthal. And by the way, Bernthal in real life is really bad at technology, so that wasn't like a huge threat. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you text that, you know, whatever. He's like, I don't know how to open that attachment. I'm like, you know, but uh, yeah, I, that was very much, you know, obviously by design. Here's a guy who's he's not afraid of progress, technology, socially or otherwise. So he's immersed himself in it. So that was a really fun detail that obviously Shay just brought out, and I mean. I get such a kick out of that. So dynamic. because I uh, I do a daily uh, radio show for ESPN and part of my job is social media. So I'm on Instagram and I'm on Twitter and all that stuff. Um, and we have this debate on a regular basis. Has social media been more good or more bad for our culture? Honestly, <laughs> you know, I don't think it's a slam dunk, but I'd say it's more bad because... Yeah. I know my childhood and I know, you know, I, I think there's some great things about it. I'm in touch with, I have, uh, I have relatives all over the world. There's our Polonos in South America and in, in Italy or whatever. It's like we share photos and everything and that that's great. I think the negativity and I see it in, you know, my teenage daughter is, and she's really smart and she manages it, but it's very time consuming. And I think to some extent, these social media connections they they take away the impulse to to speak to someone in person. Um, whereas it used to be in the old day, you'd be like, oh, I can't wait to see you tomorrow and, and we'll catch up. And then you sit down and you just have a conversation. I think, I think a lot of that, I, and maybe I'm just being like an old fart, but um, yeah, no, know. I look, I, I think it's rough out there. I mean, I get nasty tweets every day and I see people get nasty tweets all the time and uh, people monitor the number of likes they got on Instagram. I'm curious. I'm not a dad. You're a dad. At what age was social, uh, was social media okay for, for your daughter? Well, I'll say this. Uh, I, my daughter handles social media better than I do, meaning she's Gen Z. So they're kind of like meta post, you know, they're like, the, it's like Bane. Remember Bane's like, you chose darkness. Yes. I was born in it and raised in it. So they're very much like, I don't think it bothers her as much. I mean, I got off Twitter. <laughs> I think I still have a handle, but I got off it because just as an artist, I would like, Hey, I love peanut butter. You love peanut butter? Fuck you. You know, I'm just like, oh my God. <laughs> like we can't, it's, it's difficult to agree. It's almost as difficult to agree on social media as, as it is to disagree. And look, I think her and her generation, they, they get that, that subtlety and that irony. It's just like, it's too much for me. 
Uh, so uh, to your point, like I had to kind of get off Twitter. I, I'm fine with Instagram sharing photos. My, my daughter got me on uh, TikTok, which I was like, this is awful. And she's Are you doing like, dances and stuff? Well, she just kept, I don't do anything. I just look at the, I had to get an account because she's always sending me like things. But her point was it's all algorithm based. She's like, just keep clicking on the things I sent you, which was like babies and puppies and like all this stuff. So then eventually my algorithm shifted to now starting me. Although I do like to look at a lot of like boxing videos and stuff. So it's a mixture of like fighting videos and babies and, and puppies. So yeah, that's kind of, that's, that, that's, that makes complete sense. But it's it's terrifying. I mean, there's no question. I mean, look, I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. You know, it's been interesting in the last you know couple of days, just especially seeing with the whole Chappelle situation where you have a social media conversation and then the conversations you have in real life. And then the conversation, you know, and then and then the spe- like it, it, it's everyone has valid opinions, but they're just spinning. And I'm like, you know, I, I don't know. I, I think there's a potential now for more division because of social media. And I mean, you look at like all this other stuff, it's just, look, man, I, I don't think it's helping. I don't think that the net positive is there. For, yeah. For, yeah. So uh, you wrote uh, a movie called uh, Stronger, uh, yep. which is, is a great, great film. Jake Gyllenhaal was unbelievable and Amazing. a real life character who lost both of his legs in the Boston Marathon bombing. How, uh, and, and his name is Jeff Bauman. The, right. the real, how much did you spend time with him? And do you think there's more responsibility when you're writing something based on a, on a true life person? Great, great question. So that was the first big studio job I had. And I uh, just dove into it in a way that very few, pro- I would say small engine repair is the, is the other movie that I over-serviced that took over my life. So when that happened, you know, it happened in Chelmsford is where Jeff's from, which is about 20 minutes from where I grew up. So I, in, in large part, I think I got hired from that job because they read the play small engine repair and they're like, saw how regionally specific it could be. And that was, so Jeff had written a book called stronger. And honestly, you know, it was, it came out really quick. Um, and it, I felt to some extent, the book was the story Jeff wanted the world to think. Hmm. sell at airports. And I get that. But what was between the lines? So as I was spending time with them, that's when I was like, oh, this is the story. And I spent a lot of time with him. And I had an, I did feel an immense amount of responsibility, one from being from New England and being like, this is a New England story. And two, really falling in love with Jeff and Aaron and their family and, and being like, listen, man, to me, art has to be truthful. It has to be truthful. It has to be honest. And the truthful, honest reflections of things are n- never the prettiest. They're just not. And you can, you know, in your heart, you feel something. But I was like, these characters went through the ringer and their flaws were amplified. And, and you know, that was hard to, to write that. And I, fortunately, I had great producers on that who've done a lot more than I did. One, one producer, Scott Silver, who's an incredible writer, who he and I have partnered on many, many scripts since then. And he sort of mentored me through that process. He's written, you know, the fighter eight mile. He just co-wrote Joker. I mean, the guy's incredible, but yeah. you know, he was the one always pushing that. And he's like, listen, take him out to lunch and do this. He's like, you just owe it to the story. Just be truthful. Don't sensationalize. Don't do all this stuff. And it was such a great lesson. So it was, a, you know, that story is very warts and all. And look, man, you get your legs amputated. It's, it's fucking hard. Yeah. And wanted to show that, but also what's 
not really in the book was a how hard that is and and when you have the weight of this of the city and the world telling you they're a hero it's like boston can't heal until you heal jeff and then on top of that was you know aaron who is the caretaker and and how difficult that is so just seeing that firsthand and you know they en- inevitably and ended up getting divorced mm. although they deeply care for one another and they raised this their awesome daughter together um, you know, the truth of it is those things, listen, that's the truth. When you go through something like that, it's something like, I for, I'm pulling a percentage a little bit out of my ass, but it's something like 80% of relationships of amputees uh, end. Wow. It's an insurmountable thing to get through. And he got through it. And Jeff is like clean and sober and really going great places. And Aaron is in wonderful places. But that moment in their life was not easy. So, yes, I felt responsibility to tell that story and not sugarcoat it and make it like a, you know, a feel good um, thing. Although I do think it's inspirational because it's real, but it's not, you know, you shouldn't feel better watching this. You should be like, oh, shit. This is what it was like. Yeah, I mean, I remember the moment. I saw the movie a long time ago, uh, obviously, but I remember the scene where he goes to the Boston Bruins game um, and he's being recognized and saluted. And then there's sort of an emptiness to that uh, moment for him, which I thought Jake Gyllenhaal, the, the writing and Jake Gyllenhaal really did an amazing job capturing that it's not just... It's not just a, an inspirational story like that. In a different movie, that might have been the highlight. It's like, yes, right. he's recognized. That was not this movie. You know what I'm saying? You know, it was really interesting about that scene. Um, so that was one of the very early scenes because, you know, logistically getting getting the, uh, the, uh, the Bruins to have that game and have it work. So they made an announcement. They're like, hey, if you want to stay, we're shooting this movie about Jeff Bowman. We need uh, people in the audience for this if you want to stay. So, you know, producers expected at least they needed to have a cluster and make it work and they could fill it in with CGI. I mean, like almost the whole place stayed. Wow. And Jake went out there and he's shooting that scene and he felt the roar of the crowd and the love of that. And it really helped Jake, I believe, see the responsibility and the pressure. Now, Jake's an actor playing a role and he felt it. But I think that was a really good key to like, imagine you're someone who's a very recent amputee going out there and feeling all that. It's no wonder he had a PTSD episode. It's no wonder he had all this stuff. And, and you know, that was the truth of it. When Jeff had like that sort of panic attack in there. And, and again, Jake's on the ice, lights flashing all this stuff. And it's like, gosh, all the, all the weight of that was, uh, yeah, man, I think that that's, uh, I thought that I was really proud of that movie. And I'm, I'm glad that it, people continue to find it. And I think that one thing I found so interesting is it's, in the book, but I found it deeper in my research was I was like, I was blown away that people thought Jeff was an actor hmm. and that he was like fake. I was like, really? Like, I had never heard of that kind of insanity. He's like, yeah, yeah, it happens. I talked to other people. So we put that scene in the bar where they're like, yeah, Obama hired you to do all this and that. Dude, I was like, this is crazy. You know, I'm telling you, the producers were like, this is outlandish. Anyway, I fought for it. It was in the movie. And then when you know, since then, it's really proven that that kind of hysteria has taken over so much of our country of people just like creating this shit out of thin air. Yep. Sandy hook. You hear all this kind of stuff. And then you look at the, I mean, imagine that losing your legs, your life has fallen apart. You're in constant pain and you go and you keep, and it wasn't just once people going up to you and being like, listen, I know it's not real. It just blows my mind that we live in that, that world. 
So you did uh, you did an arc on This Is Us, which is my mom's favorite show, and which a lot is, of mom's favorite shows. It's Thank everybody's <laughs> mom's favorite show. Uh, so I, I'm curious about because because people love to cry with that show. Like that's <laughs> a th- I guess it's a little cliche, but people do love to cry. Um, and I'm wondering those tears and that catharsis. Uh, that people get, uh, particularly people's moms. Why is that? Why is that important? Well, look, I think, I think catharsis. What you say is like, you know, I, I, the, I'll tell you the way I was brought up um, was very few times I saw my dad cry. Although my dad and men cry, and, and I think people in general are not always taught to have that outlet. And, you know, look, man, I, I still have that. My wife was incredibly emotional and deeply, deeply textured with all that stuff. She'll cry over something and I'll try to comfort her. And she's like, let me get it out. Mm-hmm. It's out. I'm better. And it's like, you know, it's a, it's a cleansing. And I think sometimes it's harder to do that in our own lives because but quite frankly, things are very complicated. You know, sometimes we cry when we're happy. Sometimes, I mean, look, my mom died, uh, passed away in uh, a few months ago. Mm. And I was so numb that I'm like, it'll hit me in the weirdest thing. I'll be like, holy shit, she's not there. I just, it's like you think someone's in the room. You know what I mean? So, yeah, yeah. I think sometimes these emotional things like this is us, in it, you know, you in in terms of emotionally, it gives you the ability to work through some of those emotions in a, in a safe, controlled environment. That is, is that is cathartic. It's like a workout to some extent, and 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 you feel warm afterwards. I think, or, or cleansed a little bit. Yeah, you know, you were saying about how you grew up, you know, you didn't really see your father like that, you know, when I was growing up. I mean, and I have three older brothers. I mean, guys like never like hugged each other like they do now. Like when when guys see each other or say, you know, greet each other and say goodbye, you know, my husband will, 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 will hug a guy friend. Um, you know, maybe give him a kiss on the cheek or something, you know? Yeah. Um, And you never ever saw that when I was growing up. I mean, that was just suppressed, like, a hundred percent. I I will say in my own life because I'm Italian, I was getting kissed and hugged by like men my whole life. I remember going to Italy and like strange men coming up and kissing me on the lips, and I was like, wow, this is uh, such a. But to your point, a lot of the guys I grew up with, I couldn't do that, and you didn't see it. You know what I mean? It just wasn't accepted. But yes, yeah, it's, it's interesting that has seemed to have happened over the last couple of decades that men are now embracing in a way they certainly weren't that long ago. Well, it's kind of like that. Hey, hey, bro. It's like that. Yeah. Hey, bro. Good to see you, bro. It's like that, that sort of vibe I think exists now. And I, yeah, it is, it is different. It's different from when I was growing up. Although I also had the Italian family thing. So oh, yeah. know, I had, I had aunt Bridget and aunt Madge and, you know, uncle Johnny and all those, all those folks uh, were very tactile. So now you're, <laughs> now you're working with uh, Scott Silver and Todd Phillips. You mentioned Scott Silver a little bit earlier on this yeah. Hulk Hogan uh, biopic. And I'm sure it's like, top secret, all that stuff. But can you, can you say anything about like the, the tone of the piece? Listen, man, I am so paranoid about that project. I will tell you anything you want once we're not recording, but yes, like I've never, I've never worked on a project that's more secretive than this is. And hmm. it, by the way, the script is amazing and it's like full access to, to Hulk himself. You know, it, you know, if you're a Hulk Hogan fan, you will love, love the movie. I'm just so paranoid because there is so much uh, in it. There's so much that I think fans would be surprised by. There's so much that fans would will love. 
but I, you know, I, I think it's kind of like a Marvel movie in a way. And, and like, you know, I, 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 I respect this project too much that I don't want to do anything right to, to get my ass in hot water, but more importantly is to, to potentially cause some stir with it. Sure. So at the sure. end, I'm happy, more than happy to tell you, I will say if you're a Hulk Hogan fan, you will really love it. Yeah. I learned so much about, about the, about wrestling, professional wrestling through, uh, researching and writing it with Scott. So moving forward, you see yourself back on stage, writing for the stage, writing for film, acting on, what, what direction do you take your career life? It could be because you've got so many different directions available to you. I mean, all of the above. So I, uh, you know, I'm primarily day to day, a screenwriter. Um, I'm working, I'm always working on a bunch of that stuff, which I love, but I, I love directing, man. It, it, I've, it's the first thing I've ever done, writing, directing, especially being in the movie was, one, you know, that that's a very unique situation. But it's the first time I, my whole brain felt like it was all clicking. You know, you, I, I write a movie for a studio or another director, even if I love the director, you're kind of writing it for someone else. And in and, and this process, it was all collaborative and i i fucking loved it and i can't wait to do it again and i'm and i have a lot of stuff i mean the pandemic delayed the release of this it was always like nobody's going to give me another directing job until the movie's out and they've seen it i kind of all the above i love the stage i love theater you know obviously hit a pause for a couple reasons one due to the pandemic and then also i've just been so busy in these other you know uh film and tv things but uh you know there's nothing like stage i mean it's like it's in some ways my most favorite art form, you hmm. know, um, it's, to, you know, it's just there that night, but to have a play up and, and to connect with an audience like that is just, I mean, there's nothing like that, nothing like that. So I, you know, I kind of want to do it all and, and just sort of see where it goes, but I'm really excited to direct another movie. And, um, you know, I'm also excited to have some great directors direct some of these movies that I've written to just, again, I've learned so much being on the set as an actor and as a writer, seeing these other directors work that, and, and now having done a movie, like I can't wait to do that again to get even more specific yeah. sort of, you know, tips and just learn from that, you know. I want to just go back real quick to the soundtrack of Small Engine Repair. Oh, yes. Because the it. music was just incredible. Now, were there were there songs that you had in mind that you wanted? Because I know you, you, you obviously have a music supervisor, but how how involved were you with choosing a lot of these songs? I'm so happy you've asked that question. I wish more and more people did because, the, the, you know, it's one of those things that the, the soundtrack was an immense amount of work getting it. Now, the one of the uh, my manager, who's a producer on this, who is so like a producing partner, he works for a company. Um, his company, Canopy, works with Teamwork, who was one of the investors in the film and like sort of partnered on it. Nick Palmacci is the uh, another paisan. He was a uh, the music supervisor. So they have access to all of these great artists so look man if if this was a you know 50 million dollar movie it would be guns and roses acdc you know lita ford and you know all that stuff fleetwood mac you just kick it with this old school soundtrack we couldn't do that so it was like nick was so instrumental in saying here's a combination of like newer stuff that you know these artists would benefit from being in a movie you know and and we had a lot of time and just he kept sending me playlists we share on Spotify, like the small engine repair playlist. We just kept showing me new artists and picking it and trying it against picture and seeing how it was. And then you had, you know, John Bernthal knows Sturgill very well as they do. And I mean, Sturgill, it's like, I would put him on that $50 million 
I mean, at, at the end of the day, I, I, I wouldn't have traded any of these songs for anything, but, you know, Sturgill and Shooter and Waylon, who again, John Bernthal knows Shooter and we got those. And, but a lot of those other ones were, were for, I hadn't, I wasn't familiar with the artists and I listened to it and I was like, wow, this is so cool and so great. And then, you know what I mean? It's like this, one of the best parts about post-production is, is when you put that music over the, over the, over the scene and you see how it just elevates it or floats. And sometimes songs you love, they're like, it just ain't working. But that element was, was, and it was the discovering these artists and putting them in was one of my greatest pleasures of the whole process. And I have to say, as a viewer, it was a gift to someone like me who didn't oh, know these artists as well. And I looked them, I looked all of them up. <laughs> it's like, you know, am I that out of it in the music scene that, <laughs> that I don't know these people? So, but well, I, but I think wonderful. I'm so happy to hear that. I'll definitely tell Nick he'll be thrilled. Uh, you know, he, he works so hard. And, you know, so, so then when you like, as a filmmaker, it's easy. It's like, look, I want this song. And then he has to start reaching out to them and negotiating them and saying to an agent and they're like, wait, how much money? And you're like, listen, this is not a big movie. And then eventually you find the right artist who's like, look, I, I you know, I just want it out there. I love what you're doing. And in some cases, I think they had to see the movie and they're like, okay, cool. You know? Um, yeah, it was, it was great, but I'm with you. A lot of those bands I had not heard of. And now I'm like, took a deep dive into them. Uh, and, well, listen, really the uh, the movie is Small Engine Repair. It really is. We're not just saying this. We don't say this to everybody that comes on the show. Uh, but uh, really is one of my favorite movies of the year. Sue, I know you loved it as well. Mm -hmm. um, really, really great film. It is available now in theaters and on VOD and couldn't recommend it more highly. Hey, uh, John, thank you so much for doing this, man. We really appreciate it. Thanks, guys. I really appreciate it. Hopefully see you on the next one. Uh, you your questions were incredible. You made my day. Thank you so much. Great movie, small engine repair, really cool guy who I, I mentioned. I mean, he could go any direct, he could go theater, he could go acting, he can go film directing, he can go screenwriting. I mean, he's got, uh, he's multi hyphenate. He can do pretty much anything he wants at this point. He's a cool guy. I want to have a drink with him one day. Yeah. Yeah. He'd be a good guy. He'd be a good guy to, uh, to drink a highball with. Absolutely. Um, all right. Uh, yeah, like I, I want to be, I want to be in, like in a in a local bar with him, having a beer and shooting some pool. That's the kind of guy he is. Didn't you, you used know? to call shooting pool shooting stick? Um, I think I may have said that I um that that I shoot a a, a good stick or something. Like you that. shoot a good stick. There you go. Uh, all right, uh, there you have it. Uh, Small engine repair is the name of the movie. Absolutely love it. Um, and it's available streaming VOD. And uh, in theaters, it's playing at my local theater, The Landmark in West L.A. All right. Hey, we want to thank uh, Jacob Imrani, who makes this show possible every single week. Uh, Jacob Imrani, great guy. Um, he's an official sponsor of the Los Angeles Lakers. I always say, you know, he's the biggest and the best official sponsor of the L.A. Lakers. He's uh, got billboards all over uh, Los Angeles and out in Palm Springs now. Uh, he's got TV ads running all over the place on 710 ESPN, where I do my show. It's nonstop, Jake. He's the biggest and he's the best. And so if you're involved in that moment of crisis where you get into some kind of accident, a car accident, a motorcycle accident, uh, as a pedestrian, uh, on a bike, or it's uh, your wife, or it's your kid, or whoever it happens to be, you want a pro, you want the biggest and the best. He will deal with the insurance company. He will deal with the doctors. If you need a doctor, he can get you in there within 24 hours. And he's got a team of people that will handle every piece of paperwork for you. And remember, you don't pay Jacob a dime unless he wins your case. So remember, 
844-24-JACOB. That's 844-24-JACOB. 844-24-JACOB, or remember the catchy jingle, accident or injury. Call Jacob and Ronnie. Call, Call Jacob. Jacob. Yeah, I think we're getting better. We are totally on a roll. We, we are. <laughs> that is two shows in a row that I think we've absolutely uh, nailed it. As always now, we want to thank our uh, sound engineer and producer, Milos uh, Jelenkovic, who does a great job for us. Thank you very much to Milos. Uh, don't forget, if you are right now listening on Apple uh, Podcasts or on Spotify, hit the subscribe button. Uh, leave us a rating. Leave a review. Always really important to us, and we appreciate that. Sue, great seeing you. You too, Steve. And we will see everybody next time on the Culture Pop Podcast. <laughs> <laughs>